1: Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Now, whatever you think you know about competition and your competitors, we're going to challenge your thinking today. So I want you to consider how do you go up against a giant in your industry and actually win? And how do you add value as a company in today's marketplace, not in yesterday's, obviously, and a hint, it may not be what you think it is. And how do you spot the next disruption that's coming in your industry? Now, the answer is going to lie in thinking about competition differently and in constructing your ecosystem, and for you, before you tune me out, I know an awful lot of people use the language ecosystem. Today, we're going to define it, make it make sense, and help you understand how to actually work through your ecosystem. So, my guest today is Ron Adner. He's a professor of business administration and strategy and entrepreneurship at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. Prior to joining Tuck, he was at INSEAD and he's the founder of Strategy Insight Group. Now, Ron's research introduces a whole new perspective on value creation, competition, and disruption. He has two books, both of which have won all sorts of um, accolades. The first one is called The Wide Lens, What Successful Innovators See That Others Miss and uh, Are Missing. And the second book, the one we're talking about today, is Winning the Right Game. How to disrupt, defend, and deliver in a changing world, and it has been heralded as pathbreaking. His articles have appeared in Harvard Business Review, The Atlantic, Fast Company, Forbes, Wired, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal. I could keep going. You get my drift. Um, Ron is a keynote speaker, a consultant, and advisor to companies around the world, where his engagements have literally transformed strategy. And if that isn't enough, he's an accomplished teacher and a seven-time recipient of the annual Student Voted Award for Teaching excellent at both TUC and at NSEAD. Um, and I think you're, what you're going to find is it's a rare convergence of both academic research, managerial insights, and some really practical frameworks. So, Ron, welcome to the show.
2: Well, thank you, Wanda. It's great to be here.
1: It's great to be here. I am super excited about this one. All right. I love the title of your book, Winning the Right Game, but that's kind of a provocative title. What do you mean the right game? Um, well,
2: you know, in some ways, it really, it frames the, the beautiful framing that you just gave for our, our, our session today, which is once upon a time, um, many of your listeners will probably remember when GE was regarded as one of the world's greatest companies and Jack Welch, who ran GE so incredibly well, was regarded as one of the greatest CEOs of all time. And we're not going to take any of that credit away but Jack Welch wrote this really big, important book called Winning. And in some ways you can think of the title of this book as an update on, well, what's changed since then. And it can also help us understand why companies that used to look so great today, maybe look a little bit less shiny. So once upon a time, when we we were clear about what our industry was, then the guidance of, well, there's your competition, now win, was clear and motivating, and you could focus on whether you're going to win by lowering your costs or increasing quality. And the title of this book, Winning the Right Game, is supposed to signal a couple of different things. First of all, saying you're going to win today is no longer enough, right? There's this important choice of, well, where is it that you're competing? And it's also supposed to evoke this idea of, ah, you know what? You could be winning, but winning the wrong game. And in today's environment, winning the wrong game can often feel a lot like losing, right? And so okay. that puts us on a new strategy landscape. Um, and that's really what this, what this book is, is all about.
1: Great. So give me an example of a company, an organization, a group winning, but winning the wrong game.
2: So, you know, the canonical example um, of how we get things wrong and why it's so important to know what we get wrong and why. The the, the story, the case that I start the book off with is Kodak. Now, Kodak, again, anybody who's listening to this program has heard the Kodak story probably 10 to 100 times already of, oh, here's this company. And the thing to learn from them is, wow, if you have a great idea, but you, you can't commit to doing it, you're going to fail. We tell the Kodak story as the classic failure to adapt to a new environment. And then you can draw all kinds of lessons about bad leadership, bad incentives, bad culture, what have you. And this is the story that we've been telling for 10 years. And I'm here to tell you that that story is 100% wrong. Okay. Um, that we, if you step back, the Kodak story actually turns out to be yeah, they had a hard time adjusting to a digital future through the 90s. But starting in 2000, they totally committed the company to become a leader in digital printing. Right? So all the stuff that we've been told about, oh, they couldn't get out of their analog habits, et cetera, which, of course, we're told so that we ourselves are motivated to work harder and take bigger risks. So it turns out that's exactly what Kodak did. And Kodak became the number one seller of digital cameras in America. They become a dominant player in the world of digital printing. They look around to see how much money there is to be made in in ink, not printers. And they realize that's not so different from their technologies or their models in the old photography world. They bet the farm and they win in becoming a great digital printing company. What happens of course, is they do die, but not because they couldn't become a great digital printing company. It's because digital printing itself gets overturned by digital viewing, right? The rise of ubiquitous screens in everyone's pocket suddenly means that we're printing a lot less paper, a lot less photos. And so Kodak spent a decade transforming itself, winning the game of becoming a great digital printing company, only to discover that that was the wrong game. So when we think about it this way, yeah, I guess it does make sense. It really, Kodak's downfall was driven by the fact that everyone had an iPhone in their pocket and stopped printing photos. So the intuition is going to be really clear the moment we say it. What's important for us who are trying to make decisions in real time looking forward, though, is to stop and not just say, ah, this other story makes sense. It's to ask, well, why did we believe the first story for 10 years? Why were we so willing to attribute their failure to a lack of innovation, a lack of motivation. Um, And by the way, why were we buying into the wrong medicine? The implication being, be more aggressive. And the answer is because our tools, our frameworks within strategy have not been built to accommodate this kind of disruption. This notion of, we're very good at understanding digital technology substituting analog technology But we don't understand how things get disrupted from the side, right? This, oh, suddenly the screen is a substitute for a printer. That's different from digital printer, analog printer. And that's where kind of the, you know, the work of the last five years for me has been is to how do we understand, how do we conceptualize those kinds of changes? And then how do we build strategies to manage them?
1: So fundamentally, you're saying it's not, you know, the companies that have been glorious and are no longer quite so glorious, it's not that they didn't change. It's not that they didn't adopt digital. It's not that they couldn't predict where parts of their industry were going. Instead, it's that they got completely disrupted by an industry they didn't even pay attention to, completely on the sideline that suddenly usurps their market completely. All right.
2: Yeah. So classic, classic disruption was stealthy entrance that got good enough and then substituted you. Modern concern, modern disruption is when your partners suddenly get too good and begin to undermine your business, essentially from the side rather than sneaking in from the bottom. Right. Right.
1: Well, we often talk about, let's say pick a modern example, Airbnb um, and the ways in which that has disrupted the hotel industry. But yes, it's a different way of going to market, but it's still renting a room. That's not the same kind of disruption that you're talking about, or is it?
2: Well, what's interesting is what they needed to do in order to allow that proposition to take place, mm-hmm. right? And in the early goings, yeah, it was just about renting a room, but what they need to develop is both, we know about their product innovations and creating trust and community, et cetera, um, but they also needed to figure out how to redefine regulations around you know who's allowed to rent how many days a year um and so you know one of their stumbles was not having that straight in their sights and the by the way uh, uh, what one of the responses of the, the traditional players right could have been creating a stronger alliance with cities to keep this new kind of disruptor at bay but again this would be a different game than just the usual, how do we go head to head within the usual boundaries?
1: Yeah. How do I win on price or quality or experience or breakfast service or friendliness of staff or all the qualities that we've always competed for selling hotel rooms? Right. All all of which
2: matter, right? All of which remain critical. But what we're seeing is that more and more of the Novel value propositions that companies are trying to launch or respond to require more than just those traditional bases of response. So it's not that the old stuff doesn't matter. It's that it's no longer enough to contend in this new arena.
1: Right. So now I take an overloaded manager, leader, strategy team, and I say, oh, it's not good enough that you understand this. You've got to understand all these other things because you have no idea where the disruption might be coming from. So we're going to burden people with that one. All right. So in saying this, you say that the nature of competition has changed, meaning it's a different kind of competition. Are there any other ways in which it, competition has changed?
2: Well, yes, because part of what this leads to is you're competing no longer just for your customer against rivals who are trying to deliver value in a way that's similar to you. Constructing an ecosystem is all about aligning partners. And so a big part of competition is how do you compete to be differentiated vis-a-vis those potential partners? Um, And two, there is some tension between partners in an ecosystem competing with each other for what's the role that they're going to play in this collaboration. Right, whose brand will be the dominant brand? Who will be the one touching the customer? Right, more and more we see arguments about who's gonna control the data. We all need to be in it together, but as we're negotiating this new structure, um, these these are the factors that are now coming to the fore. We can no longer leave them as background issues
1: reminds me back, way, way back, um, working with telecom companies, in particular, in this case, it was Ericsson, company I enjoy and work with. And the question was, who's going to own, to own the customer? Is that going to be Ericsson because they got the device and the network and the apps and so on? Or is that going to be the Vodafones of the world who are the one that sell the device? and? What are the implications for business and strategy and success and collaboration and everything? That was back in the 2000s, so that was a long ways ago. All right, Ron, let's go back and talk about this word ecosystem. I am hearing ecosystem right, left, and center from people. It's another one of those lovely words that we're throwing around like we know what we're talking about. Um, Set us straight. What should we be thinking about when we're saying ecosystem?
2: Um, okay, so I will give you my definition, and with with the it's it's I I can assure you I am more frustrated with the overuse of this term than anyone else, right? I mean you can't have a business conversation and not have this word come up ten times. And my contention, by the way, is that you can take the word out of every one of those sentences, substitute in the word mishmash, no meaning will be lost. And so, by the way, that tells us two different things. First, yeah, it's very fuzzy and vague. We're gonna fix that in a minute. But two, there's a reason why people keep talking about it. And it's essentially a signal of, wait, we realize there's this other stuff going on. Um, and you know what we're, what we're craving then is the structure for how to think about it. Okay. So I'll give you my definition of an ecosystem, uh, is that an ecosystem is defined by the structure through which partners interact to deliver a value proposition. Okay, that's a precise definition, it has three key parts to it. The first part is the delivery of a value proposition. And what that means is in my way of thinking, what defines an ecosystem, what, what anchors an ecosystem is the value proposition that you're trying to create, which by the way means it's not the company. There is no Apple ecosystem in this definition, there is a mobile payments ecosystem that Apple may be trying to create, and it may be trying to create it with a multiplicity of partners. And those partners aren't just stakeholders that you need to make sure are interested in collaborating for this value proposition. There is a structure, that's the third element. There's clarity on where people will be positioned and how they will collaborate, not just that there is a need to collaborate. And once we have this notion of structure for an ecosystem, it's only then, at least in my way of thinking, that we can begin to think about strategy in a productive way. Right? Until then, it just it's it becomes an aspiration rather than something you can
1: plan for. Okay, so I'm gonna put this in slightly different language. But this value proposition to the customers would be something, a, a job, a customers are trying to do to take Clay Christensen's definition the of the job, job to be done. done. So this is customers are trying to accomplish something like pay bills or exchange money or whatever. If we stick with the Apple payment system, that the value proposition is we're going to make that easy for you to do or easier for you to do. There's a proposition that's in the customer-centric view. Correct. We have a collection Everything of
2: should people. start there. Everything right. We start, start there. with the customer.
1: Yes. Okay, and then we have a collection of companies, partners, that are going to join together in some capacity to accomplish that value proposition. And now those partners might be from very different walks of life, big, small, whole range of things. They might be banks, they might be hardware, they might be software, they might be a bunch of stuff, if we say with a payment system. And then the most important thing for defining the ecosystem then is the structure. Where are these partners positioned? And how were they collaborating in order to ultimately deliver the value? And now we can talk about strategy.
2: That's right. And what we need to realize is that those other partners don't think of themselves as partners most of the time. Mm -hmm. They think of themselves as we're the ones and you're the partner. (laughs) That's where the negotiation of roles, the strategy for coming to consensus on those roles becomes so critical. See in this ecosystem setting, the thing that differentiates it. Well, okay, let me step back. If you look at the car industry, as we know it, traditionally, you could look at it and say, well, Ron, that actually, there's a value proposition, we're making cars, and there are a lot of partners. If you look at that supply chain, there's a lot of interdependence. So why, why is what you're talking about? And the answer would be, The car industry as we knew it 20 years ago, we could think of it as an industry. You didn't need to use this word ecosystem. There was a lot of interdependence, but the structure, the partners were clear to everybody. We knew that the tire guys were gonna send the tire to the assembler. We knew that the assembler was going to then move the car to a dealership and that's when you went to buy it. And so you could think about those positions as industries and, and think about who you were competing with in each one of those. And what makes an ecosystem salient? Salient is when those relationships are no longer shared. Suddenly, the question is, well, you know, look, look at Tesla. Tesla says, you know, we're going to make the cars, but we're also going to make the charging stations. If I'm Ford, I look at this and I'm like, wait a second. So you think you're Exxon and me? That's a different kind of move. And if you're collaborating with others to do that, there's going to be a question of, well, who's the Who's going to be the dominant firm? Or is it the firms that are rolling out the charging stations and the OEMs are going to be commoditized? Is it the OEMs that are going to do this? So this is the new kind of negotiation that we need to have built into our strategy. Otherwise, what we have is a great proposition that customers love, but we don't know how to deliver it and deliver it at scale. Right.
1: And then we have, if you stay with a car system, we also have cities that get into this to say, what are we going to allow and governments in terms of tax benefits and how are we subsidizing or not subsidizing and making spaces available and et cetera. And we get, you know, all the systems that allow those cars to operate, which are not just charging stations, but they might be other um, signals coming from someplace else software, for
2: example. 100% right. This, so this, this actually connects to my, my prior book, wide lens where the notion of, so, the notion of the wide lens was we're you know, we're used to thinking about execution, like having a great idea, delivering it, delivering it better than the competition. The widening of the lens was to recognize that sometimes when you deploy new innovations into the market, you, need, you depend on others and you depend on them in two distinct ways. One is you need to worry about co-innovation. You're gonna innovate. Does, does anyone else need to innovate for your innovation to matter? Mm -hmm. The other is your adoption chain, which is besides satisfying your end customer or your your distribution network, who else needs to buy in in order for you to deliver this value proposition? Mm -hmm. And your point about cities is exactly right, because cities need to do both. There is a co-innovation issue, which is not, co-innovation isn't just technological, right? It's regulatory, um, Mm -hmm. it's procedural, um, and there's an adoption issue. Right? Like, oh, you know, what are you going to do for your zoning rules? Are you going to allow charging stations at the end of the block? Who's going to be able to park for how long, et cetera? And all these things are not core to making an electric car, but they're essential for the electric car to deliver on the value proposition. Um, and so yeah, this is what it means to build an understanding and then a strategy for an ecosystem innovation right.
1: Right. So now my strategy has to account for who are all these other people? How am I influencing all these people? How am I collaborating with all these people? What parts of that do I want to own? What parts do I want somebody else to own? Um, you know, kind of how do, how do we make this all happen simultaneously? Okay.
2: Exactly right. And now you we know, don't, it's very easy to sit there and not suddenly feel really overwhelmed, right? As you said earlier, okay, I had a pretty tough job before this podcast. And now all you're telling me is I need to do more. So there are two parts to that. First of all, yes, you do need to do more. This is a different game. It's probably worth it, though, because one, if you don't do it, you're going to become not necessarily unsuccessful, but you're going to be a lot less efficient on your pathway to success. Um, And it looks like the prizes for getting this right and getting this right efficiently can actually be quite attractive. But the second thing is that, yeah, if this was just about making claims, it would be overwhelming and not, maybe not super productive, right? And this is like, so this, you know, I'll make a plug for, for both, you know, Winning the Right Game is a book and for Wide Lens is a book. That a key part of both of these is the frameworks that, you know, I've developed and that I share in them for how to go through this analysis and this conversation. To make sense of what in the beginning looks so complex, but actually we can break it down into modules, right, like co-innovation and adoption chain. And once we have it organized in this way, we can actually come to much greater clarity on what's happening. And just as importantly, much greater confidence in making commitments to strategies to address it.
1: I like that clarity and then the notion of commitments that once I have clarity on where things are going, it's easier to figure out what it is I want to do and where I want to play and what I want to lobby for and et cetera. Okay. So um, who gets this right? Can you give me an example of somebody who's really done this well?
2: Um, You know, there are obvious examples, right? So, you know, I can tell you about how, you know, Amazon got to dominate eBooks, or there's a you know one of my favorite cases in winning the right game is how Amazon um, got to dominate the smart home market and displace you know if you think about you know the smart voice assistants, Apple comes in with Siri in 2011, Google has Google Assistant in 2012. By the way, between the two of them, they own 100% of the smartphone market. Microsoft launches Cortana in 2013 between Microsoft and Apple. That's 100% of the PC market. And Amazon comes in, never having done any major technology, certainly not in the consumer market, in 2014 with a really so-so product, which was the early Echo, and ends up in pole position. That 50% market share in this with Google, a distant second at like you know, 30%. Microsoft has totally dropped out of the race. Apple's got like 5% market share. And, you know, I invite people to read chapter three to get the play-by-play on this. But the heart of it was how Amazon aligned the different actors in this ecosystem and first got developers on board and then moved to hardware makers on board and then got, got its intelligence into this hardware. And in this staged fashion, got to craft this vision of, being, of having smart voice assistants as pervasive computing, which was not an original vision, right? If you watch Star Trek in 1960, you saw this, you know, you, you saw right. the computer and Bezos is very articulate about that was the motivation. So it was not a uniqueness of a vision or a uniqueness of the job to be done. The uniqueness here is how do you align these actors, these partners into a, a, a structure where they're working and they're working coherently and ideally in the ways you want them to. Um, I'm going to come back to the you know the ways you want them to because one of the big strategic shifts when we think about ecosystems is actually you don't need to be a leader of an ecosystem to be incredibly successful in ecosystems. So we can circle back to this choice okay, of leader right. versus follower. Um, but there's another you know one of my favorite cases in the book is about a company called Asa Abloy because what we don't want to make people think is like oh yes of course this is just for tech giants. Um, Asa Abloy is, you know, a hundred year old plus maker of mechanical locks and keys. That's how they start and where they end up after a 15 year journey. It's a company that's initially owned by it's a Scandinavian company owned by Scandinavian private equity, and then they move okay. to the public markets and that's important. So we don't think that this is just for, you know, tech darlings who have infinite capital to burn. Mm-hmm they go through this transition of making mechanical locks and keys to creating intelligent access solutions right? it's their technology that allows you to open the hotel door using your a, a, a card or now your phone and they now have transitioned to managing government identity right so like countries that are issuing driver's licenses and passports on phones and so here is another story of a transition undertaken by a company um that hinges on not just having the vision. Again, the vision Hollywood showed us before Hollywood science fiction writers told us since, since the 40s, what was good look like. The question is how do you build towards it? And the way you build is not all alone, not all at once, right? And that's where, you know, again, we don't have time to go into these frameworks necessarily, but there is a, a, a clear way of thinking and managing yourself into this situation. Um, Which is quite different than oh, I make locks. How do I compete with other lock makers?
1: Right, or what's the next generation of lock, or what's the incremental innovation around lock? It's sort of reimagining a completely different job to be done. Again, sitting with um, Clayton Christensen's ideas, language rather, and then saying, what does it? What do I need? in my ecosystem, in order to accomplish that outcome that I've imagined?
2: Yeah, Yeah, you know, I guess I'll I'll give you a little bit of pushback, though, which is I think that I think we over attribute failure in understanding the job to be done to failure in getting things done. I think, as I say, you have to start with a value proposition for the customer. So there's no way in which I'm minimizing the importance of that but it's like you know just like the kodak story it's it's the, it's an easy thing to blame when things don't work out mm-hmm. when in fact much of the time the job to be done is pretty clear mm-hmm. and the challenge mm-hmm. is how do you get how do you get the job done for the consumer right right and whenever getting that job done for the consumer falls outside of your department you know your organization Even, you know, moving into a different organization configuration, we know is difficult. But when you then need to interact with other companies who have different bottom lines and different executives at the top, that's where so much breakdown happens. And, you know, I work with, you know, with some really interesting companies. And in general, particularly large companies beat themselves up as though they don't have enough ideas. You can look at any large company today, which has survived the last 20 years, They are drowning in brilliant ideas. Every single company already has 10 of the right answers for a job to be done. What they don't have is an ability to commit to this is the thing we're going after and the reason that they have a hard time making those commitments, right? So instead what you see is all these pilot projects that start successful and then end up being starved and never scaling. The reason that they have a hard time committing is because they have an intuition for what we're talking about, but there isn't a clear toolkit. And that's really kind of the contribution that, you know, I you know, was trying to, you know, am trying to make with this book. It's, it's yeah.
1: I was going to say that is, um, I think you're right. Um, it harkens back in my days of graduate school when I thought the thing was to have a, a good idea about an experiment. And I came to realize that there were thousands of ideas about experiments. It's, another thing to sell that proposition and put in their framework and all, you know, kind of for its team. But in this particular case, I think we often do have a vision of what can be done about where the job is going to be done, about what consumers would want, about even ideas where we can contribute. But when you start to say we could transform the way locks are done in hotels, And you start to imagine all the players that are involved in getting us from where we are today to the accomplishment of that change. A, I imagine most people have trouble thinking about all the players. And then B, you quit because the coordination effort there is so astronomical. So to really do that, to really make that commitment, you'd have to have a lot of confidence that you could identify the partners, bring them together, structure the partnership, exactly as you describe in the ecosystem and make it succeed.
2: Right, and this is why it's this is why strategy matters so much more in this ecosystem context. Look, between, you know, you and me and everyone listening, strategy in most organizations is not that strategic. Right? Strategy in most organizations is basically an annual budgeting exercise. And by the way, a lot of organizations are really successful with that. And there's a reason because they don't have to rethink a lot of things. So it leads to frustration and cynicism, but you can get away with it because the template for activity is pretty much understood. If you're trying to create new value in a new way, that is, that is, that is the formula for massive frustration at best and guaranteed failure at worst. And so the, there really is a need for this, new strategy toolkit. And, and the reason it matters more today than let's say 20 or 30 years ago, by the way, is because these opportunities are more available today. You know, we've always had ecosystems, right? The Romans had to figure out, you know, a network of roads and waterways, but it, you know, for them, it was like once every 500 years, somebody needed to figure something out, right? In the, in the you know, 1800s, the industrial age, we needed to figure out these ecosystems, right? It's like when f- cars first come about, Someone needs to, you know, they needed to figure out, so who's going to make the body and who's going to make the wheel and who's going to pave the roads and who's going to do the service. It was an ecosystem that matures into these industries that we identify now. But even there, there was, there was less interaction across these ecosystems than there is today. And so the, 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 there's a pressing need. And, you know, everybody listening already is living through this, right? All I'm trying to do here is give a language so we can be precise about what we're facing and the value of this language is it's not just that, you know, for the individual listener or decision maker, things become clearer, which I think they do. Just as important, they can make their ideas about the world clearer to others who aren't them. Yeah, right. Right. And that's what's required to get organizational commitment. Right. 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 And as we said, without organizational commitment, all you can do is run little pilots, but you can never scale and succeed. Right.
1: It makes a lot, and you're right. We do need frameworks for how do you think about this and how do you talk about this and how do you identify who we're all all the components and sell those ideas to your own organization as well as to your potential partner organization. All right, fair enough. Ron, this seems like a great place to take a break. Oh, wait, you know what? I had meant to
2: Yes. So the first chapter of both of these books is available posted free on my website. So if you're listening and you're intrigued, and each one of those every one every chapter in every one of these books has a has has its own kind of guidance and framework but you can get a start there and it's free and it's really it's it's there so that people can can benefit and waste less time you know in this you know difficult world that we're living in so if you go to roneder.com you'll see them there um and hopefully that will be helpful
1: to folks i'm sure it will be i like those chapters i like the book as well Anyway, my guest today, will be right back, is Ron Adner. The book we're talking about is Winning the Right Game, How to Disrupt, Defend, and Deliver in a Changing World. You can read the first chapter of this, as Ron has just said, on his website, ronadner.com. And when we come back, I want to dig into at least one of the tools to give you a sense of what some of these frameworks are like and where you can be- begin the journey. We'll be right back. group and talk about career advancement, and we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more, All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790 again that's one 472 5790 you may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com now back to out of the comfort zone
1: welcome back with me today is Ron Adner the book we're talking about is winning the right game how to disrupt defend and deliver in a changing world recommend you check out Ron's website ronadner.com you'll find the first chapter of the book and a whole host of other things that I think you'll find interesting and useful and insightful let me start with the concept of ecosystem and give you a very concrete specific definition to say that it is the structure through which partners interact in order to deliver a value proposition. You start with a value proposition to your customers. That tells you who are the partners that you need in that mix. And that defines the structure by which you are going to interact as partners. The secret to this one as Ron has said, and as I believe is true, is probably not so much identifying the value proposition or the vision; those things exist already. It's understanding the partners and creating the structure by which we actually deliver that proposition. There's where the hard work is. And as Ron has said, there's a lot of frameworks for analyzing the situation that you're in, your own ecosystem, where you want to play, et cetera, so that you have better tools for selling this concept internally and externally for people that might join you in the partnership. Now, Ron left something dangling in that last conversation. He said, you have to decide what role you want to play. And in spite of the notion of winning, it isn't always the lead role. So, Ron, how do you decide what role to play? And why would you not want to be the lead?
2: Well, so, what it's such a good question. Um, and here again, this is the distinction between an industry world and an ecosystem world right? For you know, most business leaders, the no, we even call them business leaders, right? The notion of not being the leader it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't sound right. And in an industry, if you think about a company's position, you always want to lead your industry, um, right? That was, you know, GE under Jack, well, yeah. number one or number two. Um, and by the way, the reason for that is because it's the right aspiration. Even if you end up at number four, as long as you're ahead of where you started, You've done good for yourself and your people. Um, An ecosystem is different because leadership is not an outcome. It's not something measured by market share or profit share or or brand identity. Leadership is a role, The job of the ecosystem leader is to align everybody else that composes the ecosystem, right? So by the way, so by definition, there are more followers than leaders in an ecosystem and also by definition for those followers to be willing to follow for an ecosystem to be successful everybody has to win because if you're not winning you're not going to choose to participate in the system so the an ecosystem leader's job is essentially their job is to give everybody else a really good reason to be willing to follow and that's a very different perspective right and that's why when, when we talked about the definition of, of ecosystems that you, you you just repeated, the reason to anchor things in the value proposition is because it reminds you that that's the goal, right? It helps you avoid what I talk about as the ego system trap, right? Most firms who talk about ecosystems define their, their ecosystem around themselves. And that is what I call an ego system. And that makes it really hard to, essentially you're blinding yourself to the need and the possibilities around partner alignment. So, you know, in, in the book, I talk about this notion of a hierarchy of winners in ecosystems, right? And the hierarchy is obviously the, 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 the number one place to be in general is you want to be the leader in a successful ecosystem because you get all the glory, you get much of the money. That's a great thing to do if you can do it. The number two position in this hierarchy, however, is being a follower. In a successful ecosystem, right by definition, if the ecosystem is successful, the followers are doing well. And it's interesting; followers, you know, they may not their their the size of their gains may not be as great, but the size of their investment and the risk they're taking tends to be much smaller than the party that's trying to set up this collaboration. So, you know, the risk return profile can be incredibly attractive. That's the second position of the hire. Third position is being a follower in an unsuccessful ecosystem, okay? So this is, you know, you signed up for Bixby, right? Which was Samsung's effort at an intelligent assistant. And, you know, that didn't come together. Samsung was unable to bring people together and, you know, become a rival to, anywhere near a rival to Alexa. Um, So that's the third position, which is you lose, but you don't lose a lot. The worst position is being an unsuccessful leader of an unsuccessful ecosystem. Because you've done all the work to try to organize everybody to show up to your party, and then no one shows up and you have this big mess to clean up, right? And this, again, this is the big difference between thinking of leadership as a role and leadership as an outcome. If you can't come up with a compelling reason for other people to follow you, then you you probably should not be pursuing leadership in an ecosystem. And you should always be weighing what leadership will look like to what successful followership will look like, right? And, and you know, the, the message, particularly for large firms um, is who are so used to leading industries in their industries is, you know, you could, you could lead an ecosystem, but you can't lead every ecosystem, right? No one's got that kind of attention and that kind of resource, um, right? In chapter five, I talk about, you know, Apple is a, is a great example of a company that's been incredibly successful in one ecosystem, right, which is the value proposition of uh, digital devices that allow you to access data um, you know in a mobile fashion but they've been relatively unsuccessful in a host of other ecosystems the healthcare ecosystem the payments ecosystem the publishing ecosystem the education ecosystem the video ecosystem and the, the, the list goes on partly because i think they define you know they they do suffer from an ecosystem syndrome where they think there is it's their eco and even though it's them and even though it's There's always an overlap of their technology and their devices that doesn't necessarily mean that the role should be the same, right? In that chapter, I lay out, here are the litmus test questions that you can apply, and you should be applying them, by the way, both to yourself, but also to your potential partners, right? As you're trying to figure out, you know, how and who should be bringing this system together,
1: Okay, so give me a, a sample of the kind of criteria that we should be using to evaluate. Am I going to lead in this ecosystem or am I going to follow in this ecosystem?
2: Well, you know, the, the two key criteria are when you, look at, when you look at your partners, your current partners, how many of them would feel comfortable in their current position as you try to move to this new space, right? You're a leader here, right? Uh, the, you know, Walmart had no problem submitting an app to the app store when it was an app for ordering products from Apple. Mm -hmm. But when Apple said, hey, we're gonna move to payments. So we're gonna start taking a little chunk out of every transaction we run on a register and we're gonna call it Apple Pay. Walmart was like, I don't think so, Mm -hmm. right? Walmart, in fact, spearheaded a coalition of retailers who tried to control mobile payments in retail. And by the way, that coalition was a massive failure, but it failing is not enough to have created Apple's leadership. Right. right. So just because the other coalition is broken down, doesn't mean that you win by default. Right. The only winners are the parties who are able to pull things together. And what happens when you can't pull things together is nothing. We don't see that value proposition come around. Right? So, you know, whether it's, you know, the first smart home regulations were published in, by the U.S. Home Builders Association in 1984. Okay? They had a vision for that. Companies invested in that. If they can't put together an ecosystem, then, you know, all they do is lose money. Yeah.
1: Okay. Fascinating conversation. Thinking about where you would like to deliver value where you believe you could be a player in delivering value, a vision out there that probably already exists. What's the ecosystem that you need to deliver that value? What's your role within that ecosystem? How do I make sure that everybody else in that ecosystem wins and that all the people that are participating are comfortable with the changes that we're about to make in that ecosystem?
2: Yeah. You know, if I, so, you know, if I take you through the playbook, which has got the organization of of, of this book, right? So chapter one is how to understand this different kind of disruption, ecosystem disruption versus classic disruption. Chapter two is how do you defend against it? Right. And so, you know, some of the, you know, some of my favorite stories in the book are about, you know, how is it that Wayfair survives the onslaught from, app, from, from Amazon in, in furniture retail or TomTom survives Google or Spotify survives Apple, right? So this is a game that everybody needs to play, even if they're not a tech job. Right, Chapter th- the, the third part of this playbook is, so how do you construct ecosystems? Like, how do you actually drive disruption? Um, the fourth chapter is about timing. Like, it's going to happen, but if you're too late, well, you know, to worry about it, If you're too early, that could be just as bad. So how do we talk about timing of ecosystem disruption? And then the the last two chapters are about this idea of leadership, both leadership at the organizational level, as we just discussed. You know, are you going to lead, is your company going to lead an ecosystem? And then chapter six is about leadership at the level of the individual. Like what kind of people do we need to be developing to do this? And then chapter seven, actually, I think is kind of brings it together, but also really makes this what has become to me such a starkly important point, which is all of this matters not just in the strategic analysis, but also in the language that you can have, that you must have inside your organization to be able to pursue any one of these strategies, right? It's it's the, our, our strategic language right now was is built for an industry world. And there's a reason why people feel impoverished in trying to describe the kind of the most cutting edge innovations that they see in their industries. And that's, again, what part of what I'm hoping this book will help with.
1: Yeah. um, If you think about the metaphors that we use, the language that we use, the examples that we illustrate, you know, what we say about our objectives, even on an individual cases and case basis in any organization, if those aren't aligned with this thinking about the ecosystem, the partners, the role that you play um, how you win in that structure, even if you aren't the leader in that structure, who's going to lose in this structure, and how do you fix that? That is dramatically different language from what we've always had, which is how do I crush my competition?
2: Yeah, so, it's, it's Such a good, such an important point, right? And, and again, it's, it's not that you can't win if you don't have that language, but boy, you're, you're going to be so much less efficient on that pathway. Okay. You're going to burn through so much time and resource. And depending how much time you have and how much resource you have, it could be that you burn through everything before you get to the end.
1: Yeah. And <laughs> well, it also depends upon the timing. So let's turn then to my favorite topic, of course, which has to do with leadership. So if we know that this, this is a new model, this is a new way of thinking, it's going to take new frameworks, you've provided some of those. There are ways of working yourself through understanding the ecosystem, how you structure it, how you play in it, where your role is, et cetera. And we've said now we have to change our language. But this also has implications for who we develop as leaders and what qualities we talk about as our ideal leadership qualities. So what are you seeing there in terms of what people need to do as individual leaders to be more effective in this world?
2: You know, it's it's a great question Um, and it, it goes to the heart of, it's not an either or, it's a, what do you want and what do you need when? So the kinds of leaders that you need in a mature industry setting, those tend to be more execution focused. And what we look for there is, you know, what Jim Collins talks about is like a level five leader who really has a great vision. Most importantly, puts their organization ahead of themselves. Right. And, and we, we have all kinds of reasons to celebrate that kind of leader. I put my organization first, but in an ecosystem setting where pulling partners together is the job without which nothing can happen. Well, you can understand why someone who puts their organization first might look like not such a great ally for me to entrust the fate of my organization to. And so I I draw this distinction between an execution mindset and an alignment mindset. And what we have to cultivate in ecosystem leaders is an alignment mindset that lets them think about, by the way, not in a naive way of, oh, I need to make everybody happy all the time, but recognizing, I mean, essentially what it means is that like the the, the strategy metaphor shifts from the, the military conquest to diplomacy, right? How do I think about a coalition? How do I think about building a coalition? How do I, importantly, how do I think about maintaining that coalition? Um, and those are, that's that's a different skill set because it comes with, by the way, it comes with a different trade-off, right? It means that these are people who in the near term will know to sacrifice organ gains for their organization in order to secure the standing of a coalition knowing that the real gains come only after the coalition is stabilized um, and so this is it's it's a different it's a different mindset I don't necessarily need I think it needs a different individual um, but it definitely needs a, a, a shift in thinking
1: well it certainly needs a different set of objectives for a year end performance review a different conversation um a different language about what winning means in effect
2: yeah you know and it's it's interesting so kind of the the, the second half of chapter 6 is you know thinks about internal ecosystems within the organization and you know a, a lot of books that we read you know especially when they talk about strategy it's like oh you know everybody's talking to the ceo do this if you can. But as you know, most of the organization is not the CEO. And so the question is, and by the way, even the CEO has a a lot less power than we'd like to think they (laughs) have. And the power they have, they will rarely actually exercise. That's what allows them to keep their job. Um, But so there's, there's a question about if you're inside the middle of the organization, what does all this mean for you? If you can't change the structure of rewards, if you can't change that, and, I think a really critical implication is if you understand all this, it should make you smarter in how you pursue your work and how you choose the opportunities that you're going to dedicate yourself to. Because if you see an opportunity that requires this kind of change and you're in an organization that can't muster it, well, that should affect your interest, your horizon in in, in going after it. So either you try and change the organization or you pick a Project that win that that can win within the internal ecosystem you have, and you know exit voice or loyalty, right? Exit is you know well if I understand what an organization needs to look like, maybe that's where you want to go next. But the whole point here is to figure out what's the right match, the match of the value proposition to the ecosystem, the ecosystem to the organization, the organization to the leaders, um, and that's what needs to come together for success.
1: Okay. Fabulous. I think there's all sorts of implications. Um, As many people have heard me say, one of my frustrations is I think collaboration is an enormously important word. And this discussion puts a point on yet another level of what real collaboration looks like with people who might in ways be my competitors, but I've got to get them to want to follow to making sure that they're winning as I am winning as well. And that I might sacrifice something in order for them to have a better position That is a whole other view of what collaboration and alignment look like. All right, Ron, we could keep going, I'm sure. And I'm sure people want to know more about how, for which I will reference. Please check out the book, Winning the Right Game, How to Disrupt, Defend, and Deliver in a Changing World. And you can read more on Ron's website at ronadner.com. Ron, I think what is most powerful to me in this discussion is really thinking about what ecosystem means and the notion that, yes, it's delivering a value proposition, but the heart and soul of what makes it work is the choice of who the partners are and the structure for how those partners come together. That's the work that is to be done and will, I think, separate the winners from the not-so-good winners. So, Ron, thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you, Wanda. It's a great pleasure to be with you.
1: Likewise. Um, If you've liked what you've heard today, please like us on your favorite podcast server and join us on our subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com if you want to know more about how to apply these concepts and others. And otherwise, we'll see you next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone.
0: Thank you for joining us today.